everybody. Uh, welcome back. This is Nevin Adams uh, with our infamous Nevin and Fred podcast. And of course, if it's Nevin and Fred and I'm Nevin, well, that only leaves Fred. And Fred, in this case, would be Mr. Fred Reich. Fred, how are you doing, buddy? I'm okay, Nevin. Uh, life is good here in Southern California. Uh, we're getting, I mean, we're closing in on the end of the year, which is a little bit of a shock, but, uh, but things are good. I think we've got a really interesting year ahead of us and a lot of good stuff to talk about today. So as the man behind the man, as the Fred behind the Nevin, let me turn it back to you. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay, well, good. Well, I think one of the things that we had talked about doing is, as Fred says, it is heading towards the end of the year. Um, and we've ended up having a lot of interesting conversations about some, some very topical things. Uh, as we come to the end of the year, it's pretty natural to, yes, look back over your shoulder at what's happened. But more importantly, to kind of look ahead a little bit and think about what might be coming down the path and and whether it would matter or not. You know, there's been any number of things, trends, issues that have come along that, you know, people have been very worried that it would create, you know, some big kerfluffle or a big disruption and didn't. And in some cases where people kind of slipped something out there and it, it created a big deal and nobody was really kind of expecting it. So we're just going to kind of go through. It's a little dangerous putting this out there on a file where people can listen to a year from now and find out how right or wrong we might have been. But we have uh, we have picked a handful of topics. And the idea is, is we're going to kind of talk about them, where where we are, where we're heading, that kind of thing. And, and opine as to whether uh, in our respective opinions, which of course will be worth every penny you pay for them here, um, whether they're a game changer, really a game changer, or maybe much ado about not much. Um, so that's, that's the scope for today's uh, podcast. Uh, hope you'll enjoy our discussion about these topics. Um, Fred, I've got the list here, but where would you like to start? Well, you know, the uh, in terms of the things I'm thinking about and working on, Nevin, uh, the fiduciary rule and the prohibited transactions exemptions are right up at the top. Uh, I'd say half of my time is going into what we call fiduciary rule 3.0. And just to give people a little background on that, 1.0 was the 1970s fiduciary regulation. 2.0 was the Obama era fiduciary rule. And if you remember the Vice or BIC, the best interest contract exemption. Uh, that was 2.0. 3.0 was the DOL's prohibited transaction exemption 2020-02, which became effective February 16th of this year, but which also had an interpretation of fiduciary status, a greatly expanded interpretation uh, that then meant more people would be fiduciaries, which meant that more people would commit prohibited transactions, which means that and exemptions were needed. So that's where a lot of my work's going. But uh, under under the theory that there is some value in full employment of lawyers, I'm sort of looking forward to 2022. There's another fiduciary rule in the work, an even more expanded fiduciary rule and exemptions that go with it. Uh, here's some predictions about that. One, by the end of the first quarter, we will get the proposed regulation out and we will be able to look at it. Two, it will uh, uh, make one-time recommendations, fiduciary recommendations. I think right now there has to be a series or patterns of recommendations. Going forward, I think the DOL will try to change that to a one-time recommendation. Three, it will primarily 
impact the distribution of annuities by insurance companies and insurance agents. And four, it will look for ways to further regulate money inside IRAs. I think plans are pretty well taken care of. I think investment advisors services to plans, IRAs and participants, with the possible exception of rollovers, pretty well taken care of. Actually, under 202 it's is taken care of. Broker dealers are in between and insurance agents are the group that's going to feel it the most. So that, that's my fiduciary bet for 2022. And I think I would add on top of that, that uh, if it's not already obvious, the best interest standard of care, which is a prudent man rule and a duty of loyalty combined, will apply to all recommendations to plans, participants, and IRAs. I just think that's baked into the cake going forward, no matter what the product or investment or insurance service is. So there, that's my bet. Wow, that's like a pretty specific bet. And then, of course, you know, what are you going to be writing about if we ever get done with these fiduciary rules? Because you've been writing around them for how many? You count your blog post on these. I forget what we're up to now, but it's, we're triple <laughs> well, digits now, right? I got up to 100 on the... Um, on the Obama era rule, just because it felt appropriate. That was a good place to stop. I'm on number 75 now under the so-called best interest, which is a combination of, uh, you know, last year, the, the SEC's reg regulation best interest for broker dealers and their investment advisor interpretation also applied best interest, the, the, the label, the title to investment advisors, which they're also, it's a combination of a duty of care and a standard of loyalty. Um, so this is all of that on steroids, because partway through writing about best interest for the securities laws, out came PTE 2020-02. Those two things combined, I'm now at 75. I hope the new rule doesn't come out within the next 25 weeks, because I want to get to 100. <laughs> and then I got to change from best interest. Maybe I'll go, I'll start a fiduciary series, but 100 seems to be a great place to round off uh, these weekly articles that I post on my blog. So that's my well, bet. Well, there you go. Now, as you've described it, though, you know, we said at the outset, we we're going to try and, and box these uh, new things into one of two categories, game changer or much ado about not much. But as you described, it seemed to me like it sort of depends on who you are, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you combine 2022 with this year, the 2021 PTE, which even though it became effective in 2021, it was first issued in 2020, so it's known as 2020-02, even though it's a 21 rule. Uh, if you combine 2020-02 with the new fiduciary 2022 rule, those two together, definite game changer, definite game changer. But if you just look at what's going to happen in 2022 and you isolate it from what's going on now, then I don't think it'll be much of a game changer for investment advisors. Um, I think it will uh, make it even more demanding on broker dealers, but they're already going down that path. So I'd say medium there. But in the in the insurance uh, sector, the life insurance and annuity sector, particularly annuities, yes, game changer. No, oh, that makes sense. Um, okay, good. So where do we want to go from here, Fred? Oh, well, I already mentioned that there would there would be a it would impact annuity sales. Um, let me delve into that just a little bit more. When you, whenever you have a fiduciary definition that captures more people, particularly commission-based or transaction-based salespeople, uh, 
you need prohibited transaction exemptions. So more insurance agents, particularly with regard to rollover recommendations, are, and, and I mean, right now, Nevin, we have over 500 billion a year coming out of retirement plans. Much of that, a lot of that in any event, is going into individual retirement annuities, fixed, fixed indexed, variable. And they're coming to a large degree based on rollover recommendations being made by insurance agents. Uh, they're going to need an exemption. Right now, they aren't under 202 necessarily. Most of them, in fact, are under what's called 84-24, an old 1984 exemption, which is, by today's standards, a lightweight exemption. I mean, it's today is much more demanding than, what is that, 30, 40, almost 40 years ago? Standards are just more exacting. That 84-24 will be made much more demanding. I think that insurance agents selling annuities and rollovers, they're going to have to adhere to a best interest standard of care. I think they're going to have to declare their fiduciary status. I think they're going to have to mitigate their conflicts of interest. I think they're going to have to make disclosures about services and compensation. I think it's going to be a whole new world there. And as a part of the 2022 fiduciary package, I predict there will be a prohibited transaction exemption 84-24 on steroids, just the way I described it. So that's that's what I see there. What do you see, Nevin? You're 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 inside the beltway there in Washington, DC. <laughs> well, I don't see anything that clearly. Um no, I mean I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's definitely the the trend line is definitely where you know things seem to be going. I think a little bit to your point, the the issues, if, if you're focused on the retirement business and retirement plans and things like that, I, you know, my sense is everybody has pretty much been strapped up for that and ready to go along those lines for a long time. I think that's been very good. I think I think one of the concerns that we've continued to have is that um, advisors, particularly, who don't um, swim in those waters all the time, um, but who are always on the lookout, if you will, to sort of pluck some of those accumulated balances and help them find their ways into other investments, such may or may not be good investments. Um, it'd be nice to keep those on a level playing field and have people sort of held to the same kind of standards there. I think I think it's been confusing for the average retail investor participant kind of thing to be able to differentiate between those type of advisors and what best interest really means. Um you know, I get a little nervous sometimes with the disclosure regime. I, I, I think on the one hand, about all you can do is expect, you know, is, is expect of people that they are fully transparent and disclose fully all of the information uh, so that someone can make an informed decision. I worry only that sometimes the disclosures are written by lawyers for lawyers and, um, and they're not as helpful as they might otherwise be. But all in all, the environment you're describing sort of suggests to me that that if you're an individual investor out there, whether you're a participant or, or doing something on your own, you're getting ready to probably have a, a different kind of relationship with the people helping you make investment decisions. I think so. And I think the policy issue, if we go up to the 50,000 foot level, is, uh, hey, wait a second, people are fiduciary bubble wrapped in 401k plans and retirement plans. And and yeah, you're right. I think advisors to plans really are adhering to a high set of standards already. But the same can't be said of, of investments after they're rolled out of plans. And the concern is, is that these, clearly the quality of the advice to retirees 
the government wants to be good. But even more importantly, they're worried about the negative impact of conflicts of interest and high costs. And, and really, these should almost be seen as conflict of interest rules, first and foremost, and secondarily as standard of care rules. On a more detailed level, though, Nevin, when you talk hard about, to imagine it's getting ready to be more detailed, but okay. <laughs> you talked about fine print disclosures. Um, Nevin, I have drafted some of those disclosures, and you were being a little derogatory. Uh, <laughs> only, only a little. That was I was aiming higher than that. So. I uh, I used to say if God didn't mean for me to use fine print, He wouldn't have invented fine print. So. I, I, do. I agree, though. Bottom line, uh, for a really unsophisticated investor, disclosures on page 23 of a 45-page document are not particularly effective. Let's just be real about it. Now, all the rules say you got to disclose it, so everybody discloses it. But let's talk about how you really make the system work. And I, I think uh, regulational conflicts of interest and a more demanding standard of care from a policy perspective, actually makes sense. Uh, I do worry a little bit about advisors, life independent life insurance agents who uh, are probably spread pretty thin and all the stuff they need to know. And the system isn't really set up to support them as much in this, in this new world we're going into. But perhaps the system could change and provide them a more support and make the whole thing work a little better. Yeah, with you. Okay. Well, at this rate, we're not going to get through five issues today, but let's pick the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Three for 2022, I say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just redefine success. Yeah. Um, what do you want to, you talk, want to talk about ESG? Oh, you, have, you know, you have, views on, well. you have views on ESG. Well, yes, everybody seems like everybody's got views on ESG. And, and let's face it, we've got, you know, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We've got uh, we had some controversy around the, uh, the regulations or proposal and then regulation coming from the Trump administration. We had the Biden administration come on and basically say, yeah, well, we're not going to enforce that one while we come up with our own. And now, of course, we have a new proposal and it's out for comments. I think there's something like 700 comments out already. And we still have a couple of weeks to go to put in the comments in which you will know as well as anybody that that means we're probably not even halfway to the mark of how many comments we're going to get because everybody waits till the last minute to kind of drop theirs in. So um, and then, you know, we're going to have there'll be a period of time and a digestive of it and here. I mean, who knows what's going on? It's it's going to be a little while before we know what the new regulation is. In fact, um, the new uh, head of the Employee Benefit Security Administration her, she just, they just passed out of the Senate uh, committee in terms of reviewing her nomination. But the, the scuttlebutt is that uh, there's a great deal of interest in knowing what her stance is on ESG as a condition, if you will, in terms of people deciding whether they're going to vote to support her nomination or not. So um, it's there. It's, it's a big issue. I think the, uh, I think we can all guess that the final regulation coming from the current Labor Department will be much more favorable towards the concept of embracing ESG investments and considerations than the Trump administration was. You think that's a fair, fairly safe statement, Fred? Well, yeah. I mean, it, the, the Labor Department was directed by the White House to write this regulation. So 
And, and while we talk in terms of ESG, environmental, social governance, the White House sees it as a climate change related regulation. That's their real focus, climate change. And all of that falls under the umbrella of ESG. Um, I think that we will get a final regulation. I think it'll be out by the summer. Uh, so we won't have to wait too long. Uh, I think um, if you view it vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Trump era regulation, yes, it'll be a game changer. Uh, if you go out 20 years from now and ask if it'll be written up in the history books, I would say no. I mean, it, time marches on. Right now, folks are concerned about environmental, social, and governance issues. Uh, to the extent that they are material to risk or return, investment managers will be the ones who decide that over a period of time. And they will, because the investment management community is highly competitive, and they'll decide if, if they don't think it can produce better results uh, better results in risk or return for their investors, then they're not going to do it because the way you sell mutual funds is by having good returns. So I think for investment advisors who advise plans, you know, if you focus on providing good quality investments, investments that can be prudently selected, good quality, reasonably priced investments to retirement plans, and if some of those are ESG and that particular company has some desire for ESG, you run your filters, you do your tests, some of them are ESG factor investments, then go ahead and pick them. I, I, I think we're okay. I don't see anything coming out of that. On the other hand, if you run the tests and there are no ESG investments in that little prudent pool that your filters produce, don't pick, go, go pick one. I mean, that... You can't. Under the Trump era rule, you can't. Under the Biden era proposal, just don't do it. Um, and everything will be okay. I mean, the formula itself in the final analysis, Nevin, is pretty simple. Pick good quality funds that are reasonably priced. That'll produce a pool of funds. Then pick, pick the right one for the plan. All of which makes you wonder why we've gone through all of this other over the... <laughs> I mean, I, I it's a tempest in a teapot, and it never should have happened. Life should have just gone on and people should have just done, advisors should have just done good jobs, plan committee members should have done good jobs and everything would have been okay. A lot of energy has been spent on this that, like I said, 20 years from now, nobody will even remember that it ever happened. Well, from, from your lips to the almighty's ears. There you um, go. Cool. So that's two down. Now, number three, where do we want to go next? Um. Let's talk about, maybe we can combine lifetime income projections and guaranteed income. And let me tell you why I think we can provide it. Um, they're all about uh, lifetime income illustrations or projections, whatever you want to call them, which will be mandated. Begin Participants will get their first mandated set of illustrations, which aren't, I don't like the way they're being done, but that's another issue. We had a program <laughs> on that. Uh, the either for the 1231 upcoming this month, quarter, end, or March 31 or June 30. One of the quarterly statements for one of those three quarters, participants will get their first mandated set of illustrations. I suspect after that, it'll probably flip to a calendar year. But what's it all about? Why is the government mandating illustrations? Well, there's two purposes. One, the illustration can tell you if you have enough money you know, now because of how they're done, or if you use projections rather than what the government mandates, will you, can you reasonably expect it to have enough money at age 67, say? Uh, and then two, it tells you that by saying, here's what it'll buy you as lifetime income. Uh, but that also raises the issue of how the heck am I going to get that? Where's that lifetime income going to come from? 
an account balance in a 401k plan is wealth. It is not income. It is wealth. Tax-protected, tax-deferred wealth. Wealth nonetheless. Then the next question becomes, how is it going to get there? And for years now, folks, so first I think those illustrations or projections are a game changer. Uh, not that they haven't been there in some cases already, but I think with the aging of the boomers combined with, ma what is it, 10,000 people a day retiring nowadays? I think I think the rubber's going to hit the road. And then uh, I think that the lifetime, I've never seen so many providers coming to market with lifetime income products. Collective trusts, wraparound annuities, platform of annuities at retirement, accumulation annuities, like little uh, buckets of uh, guaranteed, uh, you know, protected income, like like a general account product. I, I just see so much happening right now that, that I see a lot of people in the industry think, anticipate, expect, hope that these are going to end up in plans. Otherwise, they wouldn't be producing them. So do I think it's a game changer? Uh, I don't want to be wishy-washy, Nevin, so I'll say yes. But I, I realize that... Uh, Oh, come As, on. We got to push back. We gotta push it's back only what this. the market buys. Who knows People, what the market's going to buy? <laughs> all right. So here, so here's the reality. People have been getting retire, you know, retirement income projections on their statements for years, years. Now, not the Labor Department's current statement in terms of what those calculations ought to be and be based on, but... Retirement income projections, nonetheless. I've got multiple 401k accounts out there. I'm one of those bad people that doesn't roll over their balances. And I've been seeing this information. Granted, I have to add them together, but I've been seeing that amount for a while. I'm not the only one. Lots of people have been seeing them. And they're not, they're not perfect, but they've been out there. I have not seen, nor have I heard, any groundswell of, we're going to do something about it. It's, it should you think it certainly provides an opportunity for people to have a discussion about what that number means. And if it's if you don't think that's going to be work for you to live on, these are things you need to do about it. It certainly could be a it could be a door opener and it darn well should be a door opener. That's its intention. But whether it will or not, you know, if all of a sudden the Labor Department's new requirement that everybody does that, Maybe that shifts the needle, but I'm telling you, the major providers have been doing this for a while. The bigger disruption that might be out there for them is if is the Labor Department's calculation is very much different as proposed right now than what most of them have been doing and certainly what most of them would advise doing. So if we were to go to that, that might be a game changer, but maybe in a negative way? I don't know. We'll see. Now, your point on the retirement income products coming to market, I'll concede the point. My God, there's a lot of activity right now on that. I think we've chronicled seven of them just in the last six months. And we're not just talking about single one-off people. We're talking about, I think, what, what they refer consortiums of firms who represent different aspects of the product development and, more importantly, the product delivery. Because distribution is really what it's all been about on any kind of a complicated product. And the reality is, no matter how much you try to make it easy, retirement income, by definition, is, is a complicated product. That's why sometimes it ends up being expensive, because it is complicated. I mean, sometimes it's expensive just because, but it's an issue. And I think the challenge has been 
can these manufacturers, these consortiums, put together a product in such a way that it actually is easy for participants to adopt, to take advantage of. Someone bundled it in with the target date fund. You know, it's part of the glide path. I think that, that sort of gets into the easy to get people in category. But the people, the plan sponsors, the fiduciaries who have to take these products into their programs, it's still very complex from their standpoint in terms of what it is and and how secure it is and how do you make sure it's reasonable, all that kind of stuff. They are very much still worried about issues like cost. They're very much worried issues about portability. If you change a provider, how do you, if somebody's got a balance invested in one of these embedded annuity products, how does that transport if you change a provider or if a participant leaves the plan, terminates, retires, whatever, how does that accumulation get, get ported over? These providers have answers for that. There are explanations to deal with that, but whether those are going to be, I'll use the word simple enough for people to feel comfortable, we, we don't, the jury's still out on that particular one. But we'll see. Certainly there are a lot of talented individuals and firms going at it. Yeah, I um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were in the future solutions where I even that, that only a few people have thought about so far, like having a three thirty eight uh, discretionary fiduciary select the insurance company and and try to take more and more of the burden. I mean, if you look at like pooled employer plans and the four hundred three B MEP proposal and Secure Act two point uh, it just seems like there's a lot going on about taking more and more of the burden off of plan sponsors and the risk of, of fiduciary liability. So I agree. It, it's, that one's a hard one to predict. I, I, I want it to be impactful, uh, a game changer, but we're going to have to let next year play out before we're not going to know on that one. Well, here's the reality. We need it to be a game changer because to your point earlier, um, you know, people come up on retirement as complicated and confusing uh, and intimidating as building that retirement nest egg is. Trying to figure out how much how you're going to draw it down and spend it in retirement is is way more complicated, folks. We need as an industry, as a, as a nation, we need solutions that help people do that. So Godspeed to all the folks that are trying to make that happen. Um Fingers crossed that it will be a game changer, but they've got their work cut out for them. So I'm with you. We have a unanimous right. vote on that issue. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, did you want it? You mentioned PEPS. You want to talk about PEPS quick? Um, just, uh, you know, I think historically, if you go back to why do we have why do we have this concept of fiduciary responsibility for plan sponsors? Why why should somebody who runs a restaurant be a fiduciary? I mean, it. Or, or, or a manufacturing company be a fiduciary where they have a duty of loyalty to the participants that exceeds their duty of loyalty to the company. At some level, if you ask philosophically, that makes no sense at all. I mean, it really it makes no sense. Now, people listening may say, oh, well, yeah, sure, Fred, it does make sense. Well, it makes sense only because we're forced into that position because historically it's developed that way. What makes more sense is to put the burden on experts. So who are these experts? Done properly, the experts are the pooled plan providers, the primary fiduciary of PEPs, and that corresponding, whoever that corresponding person will be for a multiple employer 403B plan if we get Secure Act 2.0. I predict we will, and that will be a game changer. 
not in one big way, but in like a hundred little ways. There's so much in there. But I think PEPs are going to continue to grow. They're going to continue to be a success. And I think we'll be surprised by how they're being used by some plans that are large enough that we wouldn't have thought they would be in a PEP. And so contrary, and I do believe they're great for startup companies. Don't get me wrong. That'll be the primary market. But I think we'll be surprised over time by the popular acceptance. It could take three or four years, but boy, I think this one has legs, Nevin. Well, you know, let's let's be real about this. For the very most part, what a pooled employer plan or its predecessor, the multiple employer plan, the problems they solve are mostly problems that someone who's never had a plan before, they don't even know those are problems. They don't even know there are questions kind of thing. But if you've had a plan, if you've operated the plan, if you've, you've worried about the things that you've just talked about, then the there is an allure to the notion of saying you could actually hire somebody to take all that off your shoulder and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Your audit process is a lot simpler, all this kind of stuff um, that that your plan might cost less. I mean, although arguably, you know, it might not cost less, but it could cost less. All those are, are real advantages to somebody who offers a plan in a standalone environment. Um, the reality is there's not a thing that a PEP does that you can't do on your own, uh, but there's the opportunity to maybe structured a little bit differently and to take some of that burden off. Again, the issue is those are mostly things that um, you're only aware of if you already have a plan and you're familiar with them. If you're a brand new startup, you know, then I think you've got to say the product platform is going to make it more attractive, more um, profitable for firms to pursue smaller businesses than they might otherwise. And that, I think, is the is the hope and the optimism around the PEP structure that we will be able to bring new plans into this market, employers who haven't had a plan before, mainly because, as we've said before, at the small end of the market, these plans are not bought, they are sold. And the PEP structure will provide, I think, a greater incentive for people to sell these plans down market. Um, so I we'll agree. see. You know, picking up on you said that they're that they're bought, that they're sold, not bought. Um, I would say, if I were an advisor looking at the PEP marketplace now, I would I would say, what role do I want to have? And I would find a PEP that will allow me to have that role vis-a-vis -vis the employers I refer to them, and the services that I want to provide, and be reasonably compensated for that. Uh, some PEPs may contemplate that the PPP will do almost everything. Uh, including reports to the employers and that sort of thing. Well, what if you want to do with the enrollment meetings and the reports and you want to sit down with a plan sponsor and explain those reports? You should be compensated for it. That should be a service that is your service that the plan can compensate you for and that you provide at the employer level, even though you're not the PPP or the 338 for the plan. Uh, so there's, there's make sure as an advisor that you've got you, that you find the types of PEPs you want to work with for the types of plan sponsors you have, make sure that you can play the role you want to play and that you'll be fairly compensated for your services. So it looks a little different from the advisor perspective than from the employer perspective. That's a great point. Um, we are, we're running a little long. Um, I just want to get your opinion. I mean, first of all, let me just say, you mentioned earlier the legislation, you mentioned specifically Secure 2.0. Let me just predict that in the game changer category that I think next year is going to be a big year for retirement plan 
legislation. There was a lot of big things, um, some game changers, the Automatic Retirement Plan Act, for instance, that would have would have required that employers above a certain size offer plans. There is the Secure 2.0, as you mentioned, that has some great incentives, as we've talked about before, for taking on you know new employers and offering a plan and, and basically covering the cost of that plan, the covering the cost related to the contribution of that plan. So, um, and Secure 2.0 has legacy going for it with Kevin Brady uh, retiring. Senator Portman is retiring off. So that's got a lot of energy. So I do think we're going to see a lot going on next year, midterms notwithstanding. And let's face it, midterms are going to be a distraction for a lot of the things on Capitol Hill. But I think it's going to be a big year. Certainly be a lot of things for us to keep an eye on. Um, So... I agree. We have two thumbs up on that one. Never. <laughs> We're Siskel and Ebert now. Um, okay, I got to ask you one more thing, Fred. Oh my God, so much consolidation going on in this industry. So much consolidation. What do you think? I mean, a lot of that is triggered by. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics and things going on. People that are running the firms are getting um, they're getting older and want to step aside. Uh, the capital concerned about capital gains tax, obviously moving a lot there. The uh, multiples have been really good for a lot of these acquisitions and things. Um, a year from now, or more important, let's say five years from now, is it going to look any different? Because I I swear we've been going through consolidation waves ever since I've been in this business. Yeah, I. You know, I see the record-keeping business as being really competitive, highly competitive. Uh, you've got a number of big players that are very competent. Uh, if, if anything, it might <clears throat> it might allow them to maintain the record keepers to maintain good margins for a period of time. Which, if you think about it, we actually want them to because that's where the money comes from to develop new products, new services, capital expenditures, all of that. Um, so, you know, I'm not interested. If, if it were uh, more like a retail market than an institutional market, <clears throat> I would probably be more worried about it because in the retail market, you can hide the P and people really don't have enough or may not have enough information, depending on the market, about competitive pricing and the like. But boy, I tell you, as long as there are benchmarking services and RFPs and investment advisors out there trying to act as consultants to their plans and get the best deal for their plan sponsors, I don't know. I'm not worried about it. Also, I think we're seeing uh, the influx of some internet-based uh, record keepers, which might be the new the new area to be in. The market will decide. So I don't. I'm not particularly worried about it, Evan. I I don't. I don't have any predictions for that in 2022. Other than as you say, I don't remember when it wasn't happening. Uh, so what do you think? Um, no, I'm with you there. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned about the internet. I mean, it's not the first time we've had this wave even of internet uh, record keepers coming online. And you'll remember like 20 years ago, we had the 1-800 uh, record keepers coming online kind of thing. And, you know, I'm not I mean, they come to market, they succeed, they grow, some of them fail. Um, they others acquire and bring it into their business models. I think we're kind of constantly evolving. Um, so I'm with you. I'm not. I'm not really worried about it. Um, I think ultimately it's probably for the good, um, but it does create a little bit of disruption in the here and now. And certainly, if um, if you are having services provided to you by someone who, let's say, is going out of the business, or maybe someone who is trying to bring on new plans for business, there's certainly the opportunity there for for you to experience some disruption. Um, 
but maybe also a good opportunity for you to kind of see what's going on in the market and uh, make sure that, you know, do that prudent process thing, right? Document. Oh, yeah. You know, that's when people ask me about the legal side rather than the practical side of this, I say, you know, you don't know it, but you just selected a new record keeper. <laughs> and, and the law says you have to prudently select and monitor your service provider. So even that selection, even though the selection was forced on you, you better look at it because that's part of your responsibility as a fiduciary. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Fred, that seems like a great place to close, to close this year, to close this podcast series. Man, it's been fun. Um, and, and it's been fun having you all out there listening to us and commenting and sharing and stuff like that. We hope you keep doing that when we uh, we get into this in 2022, because as we said earlier, there's going to be a lot to keep up with. Any last words, Fred? I shouldn't say last words. Any, uh, any remaining words? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite that old. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, best for the holidays. Happy New Year, everybody. Like never, we're going to have a lot of fun next year because there's going to be a lot to have fun with. So see you then. Amen. Amen.